Hey, before we get started, we wanted to ask you, our listeners, for your feedback for our upcoming Season 3 retrospective episode. We're asking for submissions, and you can write in or record a short audio blurb telling us about your favorite moment in the third season of Northern Exposure. We'll give you a shout-out or play a recording on air when we discuss Season 3 as a whole. Send your submissions to the email address northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And thanks again for listening to the show and writing in. And now, back to your regular broadcast. Life's had a hole in it all these years. I came back to fill it. Well, Sicily's gonna fill a hole in your life? No offense, but Sicily is a hole in my life. A deep, dark hole that's devouring four irreplaceable years of my youth. I think a well-educated young man would be grateful to live in such a stimulating community. We must be talking about two different places. Sicily, Alaska. The Paris of the North. Yeah, we're talking about two different places. Hello, and welcome to the Northern Overexposure Podcast Season 3 Finale! Yes, we made it to the end of Season 3. This is the longest season of the of the series uh, yet. I mean, the first two seasons were pretty short. This is longer than both combined. Yeah, I, I'm happy that we started at around October, I believe. Mm-hmm. And that's usually when a television show would start on its fall season, and now we're ending in May, like perfectly in time, like in sync with the television show. Nice. Yeah. So we're like seasonally tracking the uh, the run of the TV show. I think we, we, at one point, we were actually really close to mimicking the release schedule because, you know, Northern Exposure ran once a week, I think on Monday nights uh, until that was switched at some point, I think in a later season. But I remember like whenever we did like the Halloween episode, we were kind of around that time. We definitely got off schedule here and there. But yeah, I guess we're tracking pretty closely. Yeah, I think even in this episode, they referenced that it's May. Though I want to say they say it's the beginning of May and we're already at the time of this recording uh, in the middle of it. Yeah, kind of like halfway through May. Um, yeah, I forgot. When did they talk about, when did they talk about the, the month? I think it's whenever they start revamping the the brick into the salon. I think there's like a short dialogue that says like, oh, it's the first day of May and we have to do blah. Oh, oh so wait, um, Charles, what are we talking about? Oh, okay. We're talking about Northern Exposure, CBS television series that ran from 1990. We're on season three. My name is Charles. My name is Lee. I've seen the show a number of times. I first watched it in high school. And Charles, this is your first time watching every episode. Yeah, it's my first time watching the television series. And what we do in this podcast is that we overanalyze every single episode of Northern Exposure. So all the little tidbits and trivias and throwaway lines, we really look into it. Yeah, and we try to, you know, we try to analyze it and find meaning. Sometimes there's uh, a lot of fun to be had just kind of following each plot line and how the structure of the episode unfolds. Um, so yeah, it's just, you know, talking about TV shows that we love and every episode, we also like to expand the reach of the show. This is a show that was it started airing 30 years ago and uh, never saw streaming. So it's never been available for streaming. You can get DVDs. I think there's uh, some like Australian Blu-rays floating around somewhere. But yeah, so it's our mission to try to 
inspect the show in sort of the the lens of 2020, our current year, and and also just get an opinion from people who have never seen the show before. So at the end of the episode, we're going to have a guest on to talk about their opinion. Yeah, I think for this episode, we're going to do it live. <laughs> it, we'll do it live. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's a special episode. It's the season finale. So this is our plan. So we had for the first episode, our friend Tyler uh, was the guest on the season premiere of season three. So we're going to get Tyler back at the end here to kind of talk about his perspective of the show, only having seen um, the first episode of this season and the last episode of this season. And what we have today is a very unique episode of Northern Exposure. It doesn't really fit into the chronology of the series, but it sort of gives us sort of like a flashback origin story of, of what we're looking at. Yeah, I I would say if you had to do an origin story, though, the finale is probably the best spot to do it. Like, because of the way the episode ends, it's very nostalgic, I guess. Yeah, It's Joel sitting in the bar and all the memories are flooding in. And I think that's how you want the season to end. Like, that wouldn't fit if this episode was airing in the middle of the season. Yeah, it would definitely feel stranger, maybe more like um, the Three Amigos episode where that was really sort of outside of um, outside of Sicily. I mean, we still had a couple of the characters that we knew, but there wasn't a lot of, like, traditional northern exposure elements in that episode, in, in my opinion. But... Um, I think you're right. I think this episode maybe could have functioned in the middle of the series. It might have felt a little odd. I think it works best as um, a finale. I don't think it's the best finale that could have been made for this season. I, I We'll get into it, but this, unfortunately, is not one of my favorite episodes. Um, but yeah, there's plenty of good things to talk about and, and criticisms to make. I thought it was an okay episode. I, I like the idea that it was trying to do. Like, it was trying mm-hmm. to set up, like, how the town came about and why you should appreciate the things that you already have and to be in the moment. Like, I get I get those themes that are trying to do throughout it. Yeah, it's like a very inspirational, moving story. But I think, uh, not to be too critical, but maybe one of the most positive things I could say about it is that it's a little cheesy. <laughs> it's... I don't know. For me, it was a little too too far. Yeah, no, no, no. I totally agree. It's got it's got some cheese in it. You know, <laughs> the waiter came by and just kind of kept kept scrunching that little uh, that little tool cheese grater. They didn't say stop. Yeah, a little <laughs> the cheese grater. They didn't say stop. Grater. It just kept going. I mean, but I mean, yeah. Uh, aside from these criticisms, I think we can agree. Yeah, it's got a very strong, like, inspirational message. Um, yeah. So that we didn't mention that the title of the episode is Sicily which is the name of the town in which the TV show takes place, Sicily, Alaska. This is the 23rd episode, again, the season finale of season three. And it was directed by Rob Thompson, who um, directed, let's see, Burning Down the House in this season. More recently, he directed uh, My Mother, My Sister. So some, some really good episodes. Um, I think Burning Down the House is a favorite of a lot of people. The writers, again, Diane Schneider, Andrew Froloff, who are the writing couple that uh, seem to return again and again. I think they're also like producers of the show or or they will be um, involved more in that sort of shaping of the show. Quick edit. I got the names switched around. It's Diane Froloff and Andrew Schneider. Yeah, I think that, you know, he's got some hits and some misses right there because I think that me and you both enjoyed burning down the house and I think me and you both disliked my mother and my sister. 
Yeah. And that was another one of those kind of episodes where not my favorite pick for the show, but I do really remember liking, I just loved Shelly's mom and, and her like fiance. I kind of liked those characters and I kind of would love to see them again at some point. I hope they do come back. It's my memory is fading the, the further we get out from the first two seasons. But uh, yeah, it's, it's like not the greatest, not my most favorite or memorable episode, but watching it is just like, you know, you love the show, you love the characters. And there's, there's that same feeling watching this episode because whenever they're doing the flashbacks and sort of telling the origin of, of Sicily, um, we get to see Joel in his cabin listening to this old man telling him about the, the sort of history. And then as we keep flashing back to the present, sort of the frame story, more and more people are in Joel's cabin. They're all like enthralled and, and listening to this old man's story. So yeah, you get that cozy feeling of uh, community there. I think there's secretly my theory is that <laughs> more and more people come into the cabin. It's to ensure that Joel doesn't try to run away from his uh, attempted vehicular homicide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. So it starts off um, this episode with Joel driving down the road and almost apparently hitting someone just like some person, a figure in the road. It's this old man named Ned Svenborg who, correct me if I'm wrong, I think he just maybe, Joel maybe grazed the guy's ankle or something. It definitely wasn't like life ending. I don't think Joel was going super fast yeah. down the road. Like he definitely wasn't going, he wasn't going 40 plus or something. Right. But it is a, a very old man. So just like falling down can break, you can break your bones that way. Yeah, that's that true. Age. I mean, just, just the act of living is... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's deadly. Um, so yeah, that was pretty surprising. Joel is is very kind of uncharacteristically apologetic because you know Joel is usually the one who's like, "You're crazy. Why are you walking in the road?" Like you, you might expect that, but obviously Joel is in the wrong. He recognizes that and takes the old man back to his cabin to try to like. He's like, you know, I'm a doctor. I'm going to make sure that uh, you aren't you know no broken bones or anything like that. Yeah, he starts describing Sicily as the Paris of the North, which I I just can't remember. Has it already been described in that manner before or is this the first time that this phrase has been attributed to the town? Yeah, when he said that I was like, "Oh yeah, Paris of the North, Sicily." But you might actually be right that they they maybe have not used that terminology before. They have most certainly used uh the Alaskan Riviera. That that's is the like one I'm thinking that's of. from the pilot. So this might be the first example of, of uh, referring to Sicily as Paris of the North, but it does, I don't know, it feels canon to me. Um, either way, yeah, like we hear this whole origin story about Sicily and we get these flashbacks to like the Old West. Apparently, I don't actually remember. So I know that Ned, this old man, said that he left Sicily, the town, in 1909 which means he's 108 years old in this episode, the character. Um, but I don't remember what year it is when we were doing these flashbacks. So presumably before 1909. So like turn of the 19th or the 20th, 20th century. Yeah, that's what I have written down. I was like, it's either like 1890s or it's 1900s. Like we're going through reconstruction era in the United States. Uh, somewhere around there. I also wanted to say that there's 22 cities in the United States alone that are called Paris. Oh, yeah. Wow. Maybe he was talking about a different Paris of the North. <laughs> yeah, it's very possible. Why didn't they just call this Paris? But um, if it was the Paris of the North. 
That's true. That's true. But, they missed out on that. Well, I think we know why it's called Sicily now because we, we've seen this episode. But, oh, um, yeah. <laughs> we can get into that because that, that's kind of the end of the episode. But yeah, so we get this flashback to old Western time and we don't want to miss our recurring cast members. So each actor who is normally um, a citizen of Sicily, Alaska is playing some sort of like ancestral version of themselves or just like another character from the, you know, around the time of the founding of, of the town of Sicily. And for instance, Ed, the actor who plays Ed, Darren Burroughs, is playing the very young version of Ned, this old man telling the story. Um, Ed and Ned, yeah, a lot of their names are, are pretty much similar just with like one or two changes. Yeah, I think like Maggie's... Uh, Maggie's Mary, last I think. name, yeah, and it, I think it's O'Keefe instead of O'Connell. Yeah. We got um, Mace Mowbray for Maurice. Yeah. Um, Abe. Abe is Halling, right? Yes. Okay, yeah. so that's kind of a different, but it fits. You know, visually, fits, I think yeah. it works. Sally and Shelly. Yeah, Shelly is Sally. Um, Joel is surprisingly Franz Kafka somehow. <laughs> okay, that is anachronistic because I think Franz Kafka would have been like eight at the time. <laughs> Well, actually, no, 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 no. Hang on. That's only if that's only if it's 1892. I think if you bump oh. it up, he would have been like 18. So, like, I guess that kind of makes sense. Yeah, depending on where your time frame is. Yeah. So he was born in 83. So if it's the turn, if it's closer to 1900, the year 1900. Yeah, he would still be pretty be like 12 years old. It's <laughs> <laughs> like 15. He's very young. Yeah, because it's it can't. So the latest it could possibly be is 1909. That is 26. So he's probably like 20, early 20s. So he's between the ages of 8 and 26. <laughs> yeah, he's somewhere in there. <laughs> and the character of uh, Joel Fleischman, who, you know, Rob Morrow is playing, is what, like 28, 29 or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's around there. So it kind of fits if we read yeah. into the late uh, gambit of that. I have to say, I really like the beginning flashback scene because it actually reads like a comedy. If you just yeah, the, took the words out of context, it's totally comedy. Which is the one you're talking about? Describe he's it. Like, he's saying like, as I grew up uh, living amongst wolves and then <laughs> yeah. like I ended up in this town and I have to dance to earn my money or something. <laughs> it is really good. And the episode definitely does not follow in that sort of tonal setup. Because it is very funny, and I think it's really hilarious. Because we get this very serious old man narration. Because we get his narration is over like everything that's happening in the past, and the Darren Burroughs, the actor for Ed, is playing. Yeah, he's playing Ned, kind of like running around, like throwing mud all over himself. He's this wild uh, boy raised by wolves and just uh, dancing for his money, as you said. It, it is a very hilarious uh, sight. There's actually been documented cases of people being raised by ostriches and sheep. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. But there was like a Wikipedia article on um, people being raised in the wild. And there was lots of them for like wolves and dogs. But surprisingly, like two for ostriches, I think, and a couple for sheep that I was super surprised by. Hey, really friendly animals, you know, in the animal kingdom. So what is sort of the progression of the story here? We have like a brief introduction to the people in town. Sicily is sort of like, imagine like a very wild west. It's like not 
incorporated. Is that the word you would use when you like start a town? It's it hasn't yeah. been, it hasn't become a town yet. It's just that's sort of good, this wild west outpost. No, no, no. That's a good word to use. It's not incorporated. It it just hasn't been um doesn't have like rule of law in it apparently because evidently yeah. you can just do whatever you want in it. And it starts off with Mace and I don't know the character's name for Chris. Kit. K I T Kit. Yes. Yeah. Chris is like a gambler and he's sort of a lackey for Mace. Uh, which is Maurice. He's also got, okay, in my opinion, that is the best character parallel in this episode. Yeah. I love Chris's character. He's like a, you know, he's sort of like a thief, but with some weird sort of um, philosophical sort of uh, knowledgeable background. It's really interesting to sort of see the Chris character, but played as a villain, like a very conniving, smart, uh, knowledgeable villain. Right. See, like ordinarily he uses his powers for good. Like he'd be on K Bear, uh musing about yeah. natures of uh human beings and how that can uh, uh be applicable to our lives and how we can use it to our benefit. And in this one he uses it for like banditry and stuff to justify his actions. I, I love it. I was watching, I was like, oh, this right. is great. Yeah, because he has he sort of uses the example of crime and punishment and uh him and uh Mary, who, you know, Maggie, they get into a conflict about I don't know, morality and making your own morality and creating yourself as God. And there's a lot of sort of big ideas that are just kind of scratched at and they're not really investigated in the episode, um, which I think is partly why I fault the episode. It's a lot of sort of, well, let's get into it. I think the episode sort of hinges on this phrase that comes up at the beginning of Ned's um, storytelling about Sicily. He's kind of, I'm, I'm going to be paraphrasing, but he says, one person can have a profound effect on another, but two people can change the world. And um, I think that's a really inspirational, moving quote. But I think in terms of this episode, that quote is sort of used as like a one-trick pony. Like, that's sure, that's like the theme of the episode. But what really changes what... Uh, I don't know. That's probably a bad example because... There's a lot we can say. I don't want to be too critical because there is a lot of stuff that happens in this episode. I don't want to write it off that quickly. <laughs> but that's kind of, that, that's the beginning of sort of my uh, irk with this episode. Yeah, yeah. So you're saying that there's a lot of ideas being presented and supposedly this is supposed to be the thesis, but that itself is never explored too much? Yeah, basically just the idea that the episode is trying to reach like the profundity of that uh, amazing bit of writing, that amazing line, you know, like one person can have a profound effect on another, two people can change the world. But really, I think the the power of that line is just kind of in the words. I, I don't think we see that visually or in any sort of like filmic story sense. We we kind of get the idea as soon as as soon as Ned says it, or, or at least I do. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. I think they wanted to chalk that up as the thesis statement, but to me, that's not even the phrase that rings the loudest in this episode. I think it's the one about creating your own destiny and how you're not forged from your beginnings, but rather your end, and that's the thing that matters. I thought that one had the most Interesting. profound impact. Yeah, so the, the phrase I was using, the reason why it seems to ring so strong is because they call it back at the end of the episode. But talk about the the bit of the line that you just said like when does that occur in the episode yeah so it occurs right at the end and i promised that we're going to go through the rest of the episode but let's just <laughs> yeah. let's just time skip a little bit to the forward so 
It's right before Cicely gets shot and she's talking to Mace and she says, Whatever forces have shaped you, Mr. Mowbray, you have the power to change who you are. And I think that's a really pleasant thought. Um, She's certainly not the first to think of that line or even have that philosophy, but I think that's a really important one to keep in life because in my viewpoint, I don't think there's any negative connotations with it. Like, I think there can only be positive outcomes whenever you think that way, rather than be mired in your own despair or the way that your upcoming was, or whether you just think that you were born not as funny or not as attractive or whatever um, is affecting your esteem. That doesn't matter because you can always decide your outcome based on how you play your cards right now. Yeah. And I think that that's much more important of a lesson. Yeah, that's right. Because that sort of uh, change, that like metamorphosis occurs in Ed, you know, the character of Ned, because he starts off as this wolf boy and becomes uh, a learned poet, you know, as it were in the episode. And, you know, I mentioned the phrase metamorphosis because that also ties into sort of a motif of Franz Kafka, who is trying to write. That's a little, that was like definitely like the extra Parmesan cheese on the episode. Yeah, that was so on the nose. Like, <laughs> oh my Lord. Yeah, so, I mean, you've, if you're listening to the podcast, you've probably seen the episode, but Joel Franz Kafka is uh, having a writer's block and Maggie suggests that this metamorphosis story should be about a person turning into an insect. It's just like too, everything is falling into place really easily. It's kind of corny. Yeah, no, 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 I definitely agree. Uh, back to your earlier point, I like how... We have Rosalind and Sicily. They they took this wolf child and uh, <laughs> got him out of the wild, basically. And they taught him poetry. Like, they didn't teach him, like, any other's life skills. They just taught him poetry. <laughs> That's the one thing. <laughs> That's what makes a civilized man, poetry. You know what? I've, I mean, I definitely have notes. Like, I feel like we're very off uh, chronology. But I do, I agree. I, I want to talk about, try to... Ki- catch every little nugget in this episode, but we're kind of jumping around. So I also want to mention something that the thing that kind of made me really just like bust out laughing was so, okay. So we've already set up uh, before Sicily becomes a town. It's sort of like this wild west outpost. We got a lot of grungy sort of like rugged, like men in the bar and they're drinking and playing cards. And uh, there's a moment (laughs) later in the episode after Sicily and Rosalind have come and started uh, changing things, they've created sort of the the brick, you know, but but 100 years ago, it was more of like a performance space. And so they've introduced culture to Sicily and things are changing. It's becoming more refined. But there's a, um, there's a town hall meeting that takes place. And if you just look at the extras <laughs> in the scene, all of Sicily has turned to just like old ladies, like Little House on the Prairie, old women. <laughs> So I'm like, what happened to everybody? All these like grungy men, they just became like literally there's maybe one or two men in the uh, chapel in the town hall meeting. They went extinct. <laughs> they all turned into old ladies. But like, okay, okay, hang on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just going to keep, we're just going to keep going off of this. Yeah. So yeah. all the old grungy men went extinct and we have all of the old timey ladies over there. Yet the discussions that Rosalind has with Maggie's character can't even pass the Bechtel test at all. Like, yes. not even close. Not even That's close. That's another <laughs> strange... Well, okay, I... 
Am I wrong in assuming that? So, okay. Setting it up, Rosalind or Maggie, which is Mary, comes to meet Rosalind, who is sort of like, I would say she's sort of like the mayor, would you say, of, of the town? She's the one who's kind of pushing for the most change. Sicily is her partner. They are a lesbian couple. And, um, you know, Sicily is sort of the muse for Rosalind, but Rosalind is sort of like the prime mover, like the person who wants to build this performance space and, and wants to, you know, raise this um, outpost out of the mud and make it into like the Paris of the North. So it makes sense that, you know, people would come to Rosalind for advice. But yeah, so unfortunately, Mary, who is Maggie, comes to Rosalind and, you know, what else would she be talking about except for like, you know, I can't get a man. I want a man, but I have trouble finding a boyfriend. Did I read this wrong? But was it in this scene that Rosalind was basically like, all women are naturally lesbian? I think what she's trying to say is that it's easier for a man to love a woman than it is for a woman to love a man. Not necessarily that women are all naturally lesbians, but that it would be, quote unquote, like easier to love a woman than it would be to love a man. It's kind of tricky to understand. Yeah, I was confused. I don't really think the point came across clearly, at least to me, but we can't, I can't say that Rosalind said uh, at least once when she was talking to Mary, she was like, you know, this is just speaking from my own experience. And, you know, we know that Rosalind is a lesbian, so she's kind of dictating from what she's uh, experienced in her life. I think it makes sense in the beginning when she's sort of talking about how men, um, how how to explain men falling in love with women and sort of a, there's like this Freudian interpretation to it. Um, but it's sort of, her argument sort of goes off the rails towards the end of the conversation. And, you know, later on, I think, I guess it works out between Mary and Franz because they're seen together a lot. If we look at it in an honest view, maybe the authorial intent isn't meant to be used from Rosalind's mouth. Like maybe that's just a character speaking. So we're thinking that like it's kind of a strange thing that what she said right there. And instead of ascribing that that's what the writers believed in, um, maybe that's just what the character believed in and it reflects on how she does all her actions. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think that, yeah, I think I can agree with that because... Uh, like I was saying, in that scene, Rosalind says, you know, this is just from my experience, but X, Y, Z. Right, right. Okay, let me take it back to the beginning, though. Uh, I feel like we skipped a large portion of the episode. Yes. <laughs> so, in the beginning, it's established that Mace has, like, uh, an ownership on Sally or something that, like, she does not feel comfortable being with him, but she kind of has to be because it's the Wild West and there's no, you know, law or anything like that. And Mace has to skip town for a while with Kit. So they go off and ride on their horses and leave town while firing their guns into the air, which I don't understand. <laughs> like, what, were bullets free back then? Like, come on. <laughs> bullets grew on trees back in the, uh, <laughs> in the West. Um, yeah, while they're gone, Rosalind and Sicily roll into town and uh, start making change, start... I guess effectively gentrifying the the Wild West outpost. <laughs> and they create a performance space. They really want to um, promote art and culture, and you know, effectively raise uh, you know raise everyone out of the mud in their minds. But I mean, you know, is that is that a little condescending? You know, what what if the town was 
okay with being uh, uncultured and <laughs> just, you know, like because Sicily is sort of today is sort of like in Joel's eyes, like, you know, uncivilized, but I mean, they're doing fine. No, I think you raise a really good point on that. And I think I have two thoughts on that. Yes, you're right. Like Joel views the town of present day Sicily as also like uncultured and um, nowhere near New York sophistication. Um, So it is kind of like maybe hypocritical to say that. But in their eyes, if we take the presumption, like the premise is that you should never be an uncivilized Western land, then what they're doing is an ultimate good. And I think it plays into the thesis of the episode where it says like, whatever forces have shaped you, you have the power to change who you are. They're trying to say that for the town. So like the town started off as this pig pen. And then because of um, people's decision to want to change, they can change it into this utopia, very cultured centered land. Yeah. I think, I think you're totally right. And and that's a, a good point. We didn't really touch on that part of the sort of motif of the making a change for yourself. That is also represented in just the town itself. Like the whole setting is playing into that theme that you brought up. And yeah, I mean, you don't have to have a lot of like culture and literature and art to uh, be happy and to have like a good town. But um, certainly we could say that it is a positive gain for, for Sicily, the town. <laughs> because yeah, it, I mean, it was pretty squalid before they came. Yeah. Though I have to say the way that Sicily and Rosalind came into town and started proposing these changes, it sounded awfully close to communism. <laughs> Yeah. Like it's like we're gonna make this place where like writers can thrive and it's gonna be intellectual and everyone's gonna share it's the like, same things. Yeah, I mean it's just like Arcadia, like this idealized <laughs> utopia, and it does have sort of an air of just like patronizing, you know, in a way. But I think in the end, you know, they are looking out for Ned. They are helping Ned. They're trying to do what's best. I think they have the best intentions. And I think we're over, we are overanalyzing it if we're trying to criticize that because they do make a positive change to the town. <laughs> they, they do. They do. We can see that in like uh, one of the pivotal transformation scenes is whenever they put on like their first performance in the town, in the um, uh, old brick, the salon, I think is what they call it. La, la Salon, yeah, or whatever, Ned, uh, the, the French pronunciation. But um, I wanted to talk about this because uh, Ned, when he's telling the story, describes it as an interpretive dance performance celebrating the pagan god Gaia, like, you know, the god of earth. So, you know, it's like separation of church and state. You know, we don't really have to worry about religion. We should just focus on art and focus on culture and focus on the earth and make our own rules. You know, we don't have to be governed by the church. I mean, that's, I'm maybe diving in a little too deep there, but that's kind of what I was picking up from this uh, sort of philosophy, this perspective that's happening. And as Ned is telling the story, he says, you know, what he feared was about to come true, like these uncivilized rough men are treating this sort of interpretive dance as like a strip show. But um, I think ultimately at the end of the scene, they are just, you know, Sicily perseveres and the audience is really just in awe, you know, by this artistic expression. Um, However, where was Sister Mary during this performance? Like what would she have to say about this like pagan ritual that's happening? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know where she was. Because um, apparently Sister Mary, like Maggie's character, got transformed into like um, a missionary. Yeah, yeah I forgot like, to um, mention that. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know. I wonder how she would have reacted to that. I don't. I can't imagine she would have approved. Because this is like a pagan god. Yeah, I don't think they were super open-minded back then um, <laughs> about pagan gods. Anyway, um, yeah. So that you were kind of talking about this is kind of like the first step in sort of uh, introducing culture here. What happens next? I think that we see them trying to educate Ned and he steadily learns how to read and understand poetry. In fact, he even reads Four Saints in Three Acts which is an opera with music by Virgil Thompson and libretto by Gertrude Stein. And it was really groundbreaking in form, content, and for its all-black cast. So basically all the saints were portrayed as black, which was you know, really groundbreaking yeah. in, the, in the 1920s when it was written. It's like a modern-day Hamilton. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and he, you know, he kind of, I guess, becomes a poet, as we mentioned, He's reading this poetry, and later in the episode, he does a poetry reading of his own work. Sicily sort of introduces as sort of the MC at the performance space, the salon, I guess. And the slam poetry. <laughs> yeah. And she says, we're going to be having like some readings from this poet and that poet. She actually pronounces uh, Rainier Maria Rilke, which I think it's, I think it's just Rainer, Rainer Maria Rilke. But I think so too. Yeah. But at, at least they got like the appropriate, like time appropriate uh, poets. I, I had actually looked at yeah. it. I was like, is this like anachronistic? Um, and no, it was totally fun. Yeah, yeah. So it, it fits with the setting. And uh, Ned reads his, his poem called Between Antigone. Um, I, I call this one Between Antigone. Blue jays on a log, gog. Blue jays on a log, gog. Brown long log, blue jays, blue, blue jays on the brown long log, agog, blue jays on the log. Blue jays, blue, blue jays off the log, blue jays off the long brown log, off, off, long brown log. Yeah, I thought they were going to laugh whenever Ed said the poem, because <laughs> in my ears, honest to God, I could not tell if it was a good poem or not. I am not very good at poetry. <laughs> so when I heard it, I was like, is this is this meant to be played for laughs? Like, are they about to start throwing fruit and produce at him? Or is it like <laughs> he, he's about to get wild applause, which it was the latter? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say poetry is like very subjective. And, you know, this is very simple language, um, but it has rhythm. It has uh, like meter and... Um, is structured in such a way that it sort of has this uh, rhythmic uh, bounciness to it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's not, not my favorite poem, but I couldn't say it's a bad poem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's when uh, Ed realizes that, uh, I'm sorry, Ned. Ned realizes yeah. <laughs> that like it's not even the fame that he wants or the applause. He just wants Sicily's affection since he has fallen in love with her. Oh, yes. Ned is in love with Sicily. He brings it up to her. And she says, no, my heart belongs to Rosalind. And um, yeah, actually, so what happens from there? Like Ned is just a little bit heartbroken. And I think he admits later that, you know, he realized that he always loved Sicily despite this sort of unrequited love, right? Yeah, he's always going to continue to love her, which I guess transitions into loving the town in which she is named after. But unfortunately, Sicily starts growing weaker, whether it's from like the travel or just some 
fluke. Uh, she starts getting weaker and weaker, and she has to remain in the bed. Yeah, there's like very obviously very bitter winters in in Alaska. And I think, I don't know if they actually say it, but I assume she got like TB or something. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it could have been any number one of the Wild West diseases. Rosalind um, suggests they go to the City of Angels, you know, down on the lower West Coast. It's apparently very beautiful, lots of great weather all year round. But no, Sicily stands up and or doesn't really stand up but <laughs> figuratively she's in her bed she's she's like no we we want to stick here this is like our home we started this town this is our community and uh rosalind becomes like a drunk and a smoker and just depressed and self-hating yeah she can't handle the fact that her partner is dying and she might not even be agreeing with her message right now. And it isn't challenged until the town hall scene where they start talking about the approaching Mace and his gang, like what to do with them. Because in the sidelines, we got to see Sally and Abe fall in love with each oh, other. Yeah. And Hey, real yeah. quick. Yeah, I actually really like that romantic storyline. I know there's always a lot of uh, maybe uneasiness that follows in Hauling in Shelley's wake because of their massive age difference. But uh, I think it's, you know, I think this is a better love story than what we get in the pilot. You know, the pilot, we just like assume they're this weird love triangle between Hauling Maurice and Shelley. But I like the romance here. Yeah, I thought that for some reason I liked it more than the regular one. But maybe it's because their ages aren't played up at all. Yeah, they don't mention how how old Abe is or how young Shelly is, so we don't really know. Yeah, in fact, it's mostly about the subject of her being with other men that is the prime issue. Yeah, it's kind of cute. It's a really cute, um, because in the main storyline, Shelly and Holling are often played up as um, passionately in love, like, like their relationship is really focused on sex over... I think there's an episode where Holling says, I don't want you for your brain. I want you for your body. Like he literally comes out and says that. It's supposed to be sort of a funny exchange, but it's obviously pretty strange. But in this episode, I think it's played up pretty funny because it's sort of a lighthearted. So Sally is feeling not a lot of self-esteem. You know, she apparently is a prostitute in this time. And she doesn't feel like she deserves the love that Abe is wanting to give. But I like Abe's little reasoning. He says, you know, if you have a bad tooth, you see a dentist. If you have a broken heart or like a lonely heart, you see someone who is experienced with love, like a prostitute who, you know, is very experienced. That's like her job, I guess. <laughs> it's uh, it's lighthearted and, and silly, but I, I don't know. It, it works better for me than very similarly... Shelley and Hollings relationship, which is, uh, you know, we're, we're just in it for the sex. Yeah. They rewrote it to fit into the theme of the episode there because once yeah. again, like the situation that she finds herself in, she's like, I'm not okay with this. And I think that I should just remain not being okay with this. But Abe comes in and tries to introduce the idea of like, it, there's other paths. Like does. Yeah. Other There's other perspectives so, yeah. and like you don't have to be so down on yourself. You can always change. And uh, just because your past is what it is, it's like that's can be a positive, you know? Right, you right. Change that perspective. There is, sorry, so we were on the train talking about we're getting towards the town hall meeting, but there is a scene I think before that where we get to see Rosalind sort of in this downward spiral. 
uh, as we mentioned, she's become like a drunk. She's um, kind of beating herself up for, she feels guilty maybe for, for Cicely's illness. And, you know, there's nothing she can do to make it better. Cicely wants to stay, even though the winter is going to be uh, very harsh, you know. And I think, what is it, Franz Kafka comes up to Rosalind to talk to her about it. And Rosalind is basically like, if you were in a burning house and you only could save one thing, you had like a cat and a Rembrandt painting, what would you save? Her reasoning is you would save the cat because clearly the cat is alive and art is dead. Yeah, she tries to reason that it's just like, it's parchment. It's paint on parchment. It's, um, you know, uh, pigments from a plant down to its base material. Whereas the cat is full of life. It's a living being with a soul. So therefore you save that. And because you save that, all of the things that we've been building in this town is useless because it doesn't have any meaning at all. Like I guess her her dilemma is she valued art so highly. Like it's, it's you know, almost almost more than she would just like considering about, in this case, like Sicily's well-being, you know. But I think she's definitely being too black and white here. And, uh, you know, Mary comes in <laughs> later because this is very upsetting to Franz Kafka, you know, because he's, he's striving to, to write a new book. He wants to focus on art. But Mary's uh, just this outburst. She says, without art, the cat does not live. It's just sort of this <laughs> very sort of cheesy um, philosophical debate. And you see Franz Kafka's like, rubbing his temples frustrated, presumably by how pretentious all of this is. I thought it was because his brain just couldn't process that. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely why. But for me, I was just rubbing my temples watching that scene. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. I think it was super black and white and trying to show that. Um, I think that it's really funny, though, because... Every single generation, down to Aristotle's generation, and even before then, uh, every single one of them thinks that art died. They're like, oh, art is dead, and we're living in a culture of hedonistic pleasures, and we're never going to progress forward as a society. We say that every single (laughs) generation. Yeah. So I think it's really funny that they're trying to have this all-out debate on whether or not art matters in this bar, and it's in the 1900s, uh, early 1900s, and arguing between themselves. And then we're still going to have this argument like a hundred years into the future right now. So yeah, I think you're right. Super just could have been handled better. Well, here's what I think it is. Um, Because I don't think the episode is totally dropping the ball because we get a great example of what, you know, Rosalind explains herself through this sort of uh, dilemma of the cat and the Rembrandt. And it, it really parallels what's happening with Sicily, the person, and Sicily, the town, the pursuit of knowledge and culture in this town, and Sicily's life, like her well-being, her struggling with this tuberculosis or whatever disease. But I think really the problem here that's happening is it's just so heavy-handed and just like on the nose. I mean, I think the 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 dilemma of the cat and the Rembrandt is at least sort of... Um, a mental activity if you're trying to imagine this and trying to ask yourself that same question. But I mean, just like spelling it out, you know, without art, the cat does not live. You know, if you just talk on the nose, that's, that's really just like telling 
exactly what the message of the episode is without finding some sort of like creative, moving, visual, you know, cinematic way of telling the story. And maybe that plays into my criticism earlier where like there are a lot of these powerful quotes in this episode, but they're just very on the nose. You know, they they work well as um, written word, but if all your character is going to do is just say them, I mean, I can I can listen to you tell me inspiring quotes all day, but it, it doesn't make a, a compelling story. No, I completely agree. Like, I think that listening to platitudes go on and on is like, yeah, that's... I'm not saying what you're saying is false, but... Um, you, you need um, like gotta get drama. Yeah, you got you need drama. You need conflict in order to tell a good story, rather than just like you said, it's like a like a phrase that is inserted right there, and then just try to go to the next phrase. Um, so no, I, I agree. Well, you know, it occurs to me that maybe they had to go on this nose because you're already operating under a flashback mechanism. So mm-hmm. because of the the, the the foundation of what you're working on is already deep. You can't go even more deeper than that. Like you have to use umbrella terms and umbrella phrases in order to convey your ideas neatly. And within like a short amount of time, I would say as well, because this episode yeah. is relatively short because there's only one plot line, but it has to keep being interspersed with um, scenes with the present day and showing other background information. Like it actually is pretty, it's very ambitious. Yeah. Yeah, it's a I mean and I won't fault it there. I think it you know it won this episode won 3 Emmys alone. And I think they're pretty deserving. Like it won best cinematography, best art direction and best editing. And I mean, yeah, the cinematography is quite good in this episode. There's like all this, you know, ambient smoke from like fire and uh just incredible, you know, the the set design. They're using a lot of the same sets, but redressing them. You know, the brick has been redressed and um, we see like sort of like this Wild West outpost, you know, before Sicily becomes, before the town becomes Sicily, you know. It's taking us back in time. And and of course, like award ceremonies typically will award um, like a period picture or a period piece with, you know, best production design or, or best costume. So there's definitely a lot of artistry that went into this episode. But I think, yeah, it is trying to do a lot. And as you mentioned, like this is just a 45-minute episode. It's kind of hard to fit all these ideas in. I would say the approach should have probably been more focused on, you know, a central idea. You don't really need to bring back all these characters. Um, I guess you do because it is like the season finale. So... It's just, it's just, um, it's tough, you know, so I can't really fault it. There was a lot that needed to go in this episode. It's a season finale. They want it to be really big. And I think they achieved that. They certainly were awarded for a very ambitious episode, but maybe that's why it's just trying, it's trying a lot and it's not really hitting everything. Exactly. It went so big that it had to use really large, broad concepts. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So we transition to the next scene, which is the town hall scene, and they're trying to talk about what they need to do when Mace comes rolling into town because uh, they pissed off Kit in the bar earlier. They had told him, to, like, oh, yeah. basically, like, screw off, like, Sally's going to be with Abe now. And Kit says, like, well, I'm going to go get Mace, and he's coming back here with men. <laughs> so they're in the town hall trying to debate on what's going to happen. And it's Rosalind who actually suggests that they run that they simply just 
run away from their problems because that's the right path in her mind. Yeah, so we see like sort of this despair moment where Rosalind, who is sort of shaping the town, has changed and, and, and is giving up. Right, and it's not until Cicely stumbles into the town hall meeting, you know, yeah. conveniently, and she's like, no, like, this is our home, and we need to fight for it, and I think that we should stay put. Yeah, I have written down on my notes, it's like the human spirit has triumphed, and then freedom is, is in my notes. So it's like she gives this inspirational speech, which, you know, is kind of, I don't know, this episode just kind of feels very oscar Beatty, if that is a term. No, 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 I, I definitely agree. I think that, like, uh, the larger and less nuanced you get, the more that it's uh, widely applicable to a wider range of people. So yeah. that's what makes it, quote-unquote, oscar Beatty, because not many people are anti-freedom. Uh, last time I checked. <laughs> so, yeah, this appeals to a large swath of people. But yeah, it, I, I think this all goes back to that point you made, Charles, where, you know, they're, they're, they're working in broad strokes because they're trying to make something big, but it can't really fit all these big ideas into 45 minutes. And, you know, I think that's ultimately their, that's the downfall, is like they just don't have enough time for it and it's it's written too flatly. But what does happen next? I think... Is the next very next thing like Sicily? She gives that speech. She faints, and then Mason, Kit, and the men come to town. Yeah, they come strolling back into town on their horses, and everyone's got their guns ready. Yeah, I will say earlier I was kind of making fun of the fact that the town has turned into a bunch of old women. Like the extras are all old women now. But I do think it's pretty cool that uh, during the showdown, there's like a bunch of women holding rifles and stuff. You know, they're defending the town. I really like that too. I, I know I was making fun of it earlier, but No, no, no. Cool. That's a nice small little detail that I picked up on as well. Like they have uh, weaponry in their arms now instead of just hiding in the background. So they're ready to defend the things that they have been given, like the freedom that they have. And that's where the climatic scene happens, which is where Sicily is confronting Mace and they're kind of going back and forth. And uh, strangely, you don't see a lot of the dialogue of what they're saying because Ned kind of tunes out. Oh, wait, I forgot. Wait, so, oh, well, it's because they start talking about nature versus nurture, free will, because they're they're basically like... You know, Mace, like probably something bad happened to you in your childhood, which is just like the cheapest way of being like a villain is only a villain because they were neglected as a kid. Right. Thankfully, Kit, you know, Chris is arguing. He's like, okay, we want to talk about nature versus nurture. What do you think about free will? Um, Where does that fit into the equation? And then, yeah, Ned tunes out. That's what you're talking about, right? (laughs) Yeah, he tunes out. And it's where like the pivotal line is spoken. Whatever forces have shaped you, Mr. Mowbray. You have the power to change who you are. And right when she says that, she screams no because she sees that like someone is cocking their There's gun ready to shoot. Yeah. yeah, like a sniper. And she takes the bullet for Rosalind, a hero's death. It's weird. I think, again, maybe this fits into the criticism of it's it's too short of an episode because, you know, we get we get a pretty interesting... Uh, climax, like the theme is stated here, the theme that we've ascribed, you know, whatever forces have shaped you, Mr. Mowbray, you have the power to change who you are. But immediately after she says that, she sees a sniper. The sniper's taking aim at Rosalind. She, Cicely, takes the bullet for Rosalind and dies. Again, this is all happening very quickly. And then pretty much right after that, from my understanding, everyone felt bad. And then Mason Kit became good guys. 
Yeah, like what happened to the of... sniper guy? Did he just run away? <laughs> he got hanged, man. You can't just kill the town founder <laughs> like that. <laughs> but yeah, they're good guys now. Like, why would they? Hey, man, I guess. Gotta, oh, that's I guess the theme because, of the episode. <laughs> I guess the the reasoning was, you know, Sicily is very innocent. She's very beautiful. She looks innocent, and seeing her die for no good reason maybe has an effect on Maurice and Kit. It it, it happens very quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's like one of those montage scenes where like uh, Kit gives up banditry and becomes like a pastor. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, the town obviously is named Sicily because, you know, to to memorialize Sicily's um, martyrdom, I guess, or just, you know, dying for her lover. Rosalind becomes, uh, according to Ned, she becomes more and more reclusive over the years and she eventually disappears. No one really knows where she went. Yeah, I think that's probably the most appropriate way to end her character. It's definitely... Uh, mysterious death. Uh, it's fi- still fighting for the cause because obviously Sicily left a lasting impression, and you know it, it's it's not a happy ending. A little bittersweet, yeah. It's bittersweet, and it's always, I, I guess, maybe that's a statement by itself. Like dying for a cause, like just for a movement, is really sad rather than dying for a loved one. Yeah, it's like less triumphant, maybe. Mm-hmm. It's not a triumphant victory, but, you know, it's kind of uh, what gives us reverence, maybe, and, and that's why we memorialize Sicily this way. In the present day, the old Ned Svinborg goes to visit Sicily's grave um, for one last time. This is what is apparently, yeah, we said it was like the 108th birthday of Sicily. No, she would have been 100 years old, Sicily, if she had lived. The town would have been founded, I guess, apparently less than 100 years ago. Yeah, yeah, like 90 years old. Sicily would be 100 years old today if she hadn't died. I think that's why Ned came back today. Mm, okay. To, to visit. Because he had, I guess he hadn't been back since 1909. Yeah, so we get that little bit of scene. Joel goes to the brick. And it's a nice somber moment because he, um, you know, he goes to the brick and uh, Dave is about to close close the brick down. Oh, speaking of, Dave in the Wild West version of Sicily has a pretty um, pretty cool top hat, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like his, <laughs> like his costuming. Um, anyway, Dave is closing down, but he's like, oh, yeah, I mean, just, just let yourself out, Joel, if you want to hang out, that's fine. Joel just sits down and you see like a, a nice circular dolly shot that's like shooting through all of the chairs. Like the chairs are all now upended on the tables, you know, if you're going to like, as if you were going to like sweep underneath the tables. So they're, they're all like placed on the tables and we get this circular dolly shooting through all these chair legs. And Joel is just um, very thoughtful. We hear again, the voiceover of Ned about, you know, one person can have a profound effect, yada, yada. There's like a triumph of the human spirit, freedom. It's, it's very like, I could have imagined just like um, cross dissolved to like a fluttering American flag, you know? <laughs> Little eagle flies out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, it's, it's, you know, it is an inspiring, inspirational episode. A little cheesy for me. Um, that's obviously just my opinion. I don't want to be too critical because, uh, you know, anytime I, anytime I watch this show, it's very comfortable. And I'm glad that we get to see the cast of characters in Joel's cabin listening to Ned's story and even like represented in the past, even when it's goofy, like... I don't think we mentioned, but Joel's version of Franz Kafka is this very strange European accent. But I mean, the show is like kind of a comedy. So 
can't really fault it. It's fun. Yeah, yeah. No, they're definitely having fun with it. I think if I was like a cast member, I'd be like, oh, this is going to be so fun. I could like, you know that it's this character, but you want to play it up and you want to be like a little hammy. So yes. I, I think it's uh, really great fodder for actors out there. And I, I, like you said, I, I think the ending is, you know, it's pleasant with all of them more and more people streaming into Joel's cabin and like just listening in and being in awe at this old man's story. I think that's a really neat thing. Um, really it's the stories that connect us and it's being passed down from generation to generation. So now this story of Sicily is now being passed down to the next generation, which are, you know, uh, the current day iterations of Joel and Maggie and Ed and Chris and all the townsfolks and all them. So I think if that is the message, then that's, uh, yeah, that's a fun enough way to end the season. Yeah, and we talked about this at the very beginning, but I think you make a great point, Charles, that this episode is made for like a finale. You know, it's not it's not my favorite finale, but if you just look at this script, you would say, yeah, this would work best if it were the closer, you know, of a season. Right. So our guest this episode was actually our guest for the first episode of season three, Tyler. And we were wondering what it would feel like to watch the first episode of a season and then the last episode of the season and see how like disconjointed he would feel or if he could piece together what yeah. happened between like the 23 episodes in between. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Like I want to see what he thinks. Cause like really there's no context now because this is just like Sicily is the, this episode is so removed from the rest of the um, overarching story, but yeah. Yeah, I guess let's let's get let's get Tyler on the phone. All right, Tyler, are you there? Yeah, what's going on, guys? Hey, welcome Tyler to the podcast. Welcome back. Woo, Tyler. Yeah, thanks for having <laughs> me. I got the book in this season. Feels yeah. good. Yeah, that's um yeah, what do you think of Well, can you remind us? Do you remember what happened in the season premiere? I was trying to um, look that vaguely. Up. Um I, I, this is a lot. I've lived a lot of life since then, but uh, <laughs> yes. I, and we all have. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, uh, someone had just recently died, uh, and there was a woman who was very sad about that. She got really drunk at a bar. Yes. Um, there was the prototypical like Trump supporter astronaut guy <laughs> who uh, lost Maurice. out on his girlfriend because he was cheating on his taxes. Oh yeah, Maurice and Samansky early on in the season. Yeah, I'm sorry, I don't remember. No, that's okay. I, I'm feeling <laughs> Bringing it back up, so Charles and the rest. I thought you had the episode. Wasn't Valerie Mahaffey in that episode, Eve? Yeah, I thought that's the episode where Joel gets enslaved. Yeah, the doctor guy gets imprisoned. Yeah. Oh, it is. Yes, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he gets enslaved with yeah with Adam and Eve. Uh, oh, and uh, the girl who was sad about the guy who died found out that the guy had like another relationship. Yeah, he was in like thousands of relationships or something. Like he was a. Uh, a dog, as uh, Charles said. And as we found out later in the season, he actually comes back as a dog, if that. Spoiler alert, but... Uh, okay, I, I, apparently I need to watch this show. <laughs> <laughs> Having seen the first episode, and we, we just finished talking about the finale, what do you think happens in this, in this series? Uh, I, dude, I have no idea. So uh, this is one of those like tip, like prototypical, like late '90s, early 2000s um, weird finales that yeah. like has nothing to do with the the TV show itself or like any narrative arc. Uh, it really reminded me. There's a there's a uh, there's a season of Scrubs that I think it was it might have been the last episode that aired on NBC 
and they just it's like this weird fantasy tale like in the medieval times is like the whole thing and you're just like like what if this really was the last episode of this like yeah. largely considered iconic television show it's kind of out of place um, yeah, but I think I think it, there are a few reasons that would happen, right? Like I think uh, a I think they were always like in limbo of mm-hmm. um, true being like greenlit again or something, right? Exactly, and I think also I don't know that these episodes are generally written with the intent of being the finale. I think these are supposed to be like th- these are scripts that are probably written that can be like put anywhere, and then they they film it, and then they probably <clears throat> just kind of throw it in on the back end because where else are you gonna put it? I, I guess they would rather uh, throw it in, tack it on at the end as like an extra bonus episode rather than kind of like interrupt any narrative arc. Yeah, we were kind of talking about that, uh, Charles and I. And there are actually, that that's a good point, that they may have written like a lot of episodes and not particularly known what order to put them in because there actually are like a few episodes that seem to break up the overarching narrative in weird ways. And there's actually like some chronological inconsistencies like one character's hair is like really long in an episode and then it's short and then it's long, you know, like it, like yeah. their, their haircuts change. So it's like, it definitely seems like they may have shot it in different orders, but we were saying that, you know, well, we'll ask you your opinion in a sec, Tyler, but Charles and I were, we were saying that, it's, you know, it's not, it's not our favorite episode of Northern Exposure, but it works for best for the episode that it is a finale. Like it wouldn't really work. Like you're saying, Tyler, like in the middle of a season, it'd kind of be weird. Mm-hmm. I, I like. I mean, I don't know this show, but I like the. I mean, it's obviously it's absurd on its face, like this entire yeah. like story. But I do like the idea of like kind of contributing lore to to the little u- yeah. TV universe, and it's something we've seen a lot of TV shows and sitcoms do a lot more of. Um, I know we're all big fans of Community, and you know they they kind of Dan Harmon kind of uh, perfected it in that sense. Um, but like it, it is fun, to kind of watching these older TV shows kind of play with play with narrative and see what they could kind of get away with, uh, with episodes like this. So I don't, I didn't hate the episode as someone who doesn't watch the show and couldn't follow a narrative like arc anyway, it was kind of perfect for me to kind of jump in and just kind of watch this one off story. <laughs> no, I agree. I think that this was like a really great one for any viewer to just jump right in and to watch it because they kind of realize what's going on. Like he said, like it doesn't fit into the entire puzzle of it. So it's kind of just on its own tangent and you can just watch it separate as you already are. There was another great episode or another example like this of an episode where it was kind of totally removed from Sicily. It was just following two of the characters in Northern Exposure Charles, I'm talking about Three Amigos. And our guest on the podcast was like, this is maybe the worst episode for me to watch or perhaps the best because it has nothing <laughs> really to do, like like what you're saying, Tyler, like it doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the overarching narrative of it, but it's a nice little contained story. Yeah, it's, it's tough to get a sense. Uh, luckily, I was able to watch an episode earlier because if this was my only episode, I'd probably be on the like, what is this? Like, <laughs> yeah. This is like an anthology show, like are these all like, you know, so... I got to have a sense of what the TV show is already kind of like. If it, if it were my first viewing, I'd probably be pretty confused and wonder <laughs> like who are all these characters that are sitting around watching this old guy tell a story because I don't get re- get to really meet any of them. Right, yeah, yeah. You would actually think that the characteristic traits that they're showing on their past versions are actually uh, the real characteristics of them in present day. Like you would think right. that like, oh, this guy's like uh, um this bandit right here, he's like really conniving and he likes to steal all the time and threaten people. But in real life, he's just like a radio jockey. Like he's a really pleasant, yeah. um, 
man in real life. Well, Tyler, did you have any um, like favorite moments or moments you thought were weird or notable? Uh, the Kafka storyline <laughs> yeah. was probably my favorite. I just love this idea that Kafka is just like this bumbling, depressed idiot who like <laughs> yeah. can only find inspiration and in whatever woman is like closest to him <laughs> at the, any given moment. Um, so I, I thought that was like really funny. It's very revisionist history because he basically, like the idea for the metamorphosis is largely Sister Mary's in the episode. Like he doesn't really yeah. come up with anything. No. And whenever like faced with a problem, he's utterly useless. He's just like everything's pointless. <laughs> yeah, he's, a lot of his like rubbing his temples distressed. Yeah. I thought I had a hard time kind of following part of the narrative, like the uh, the blonde girl who gets with the older guy and then has yes. like the... The guy who I'm sorry, I know none of their names, but the the guy comes back and says, "You have to come back with us." Like I didn't know what what any of that what was going on with any of that. Um, so I think that could have been a little bit better. Yeah, those characters are kind of similar. Like in the pilot episode of the TV show, um, the character Sally, who's the blonde girl, is in love with the very old man Halling, who is played. His I think his character's name is Abe in this episode, and mm. there's a love triangle because. Sally, I guess in this episode, used to be in love with Mace, you know, this uh, sort of outlaw bandit. I'm, I'm referring to them as they are in the episode you just watched. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so there, that kind of love triangle plays out a lot throughout the, the beginning of the series. And yeah, it's pretty strange because uh, Shelly, who is Sally, you know, the blonde, the blonde lady is supposedly like 18 or 19 and the older man is like in his 60s, I want to say. So Both of them. Yeah, I don't know if that happened in if that was brought up in the the season premiere that you saw Tyler in uh, Bumpy Road to Love, but a lot of our guests seem to point that out that that is like a weird sort of uh, <laughs> pairing there. I think we've talked yeah. about this a million times, but I think the show tries to like handle their relationship with like with grace and tries to present it in like oh you know age is I mean love is ageless you know, but a lot yeah. of times they play it up for laughs and it, it's just kind of unsettling. I did like the fact that there's like a, a like a proper like lesbian couple in this episode. Yeah. Um, which wasn't something I was expecting from a TV show from the 90s, especially not one. This was on like public television, right? Yeah, it was on CBS. It was really yeah, progressive CBS. for that. Yeah, no, 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 I agree with you for showing that. They didn't like outright say the L word, but it was you know, widely assumed. No, yeah, and it, that's kind of a, a graceful way of saying it. It's not, you know, they're not just using the term to like, to the term is not used as the descriptor. The descriptor is like their affection for each other. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I thought that was like really interesting. I was like, wow, I can't believe this would be on like over the air television in the '90s. Because now, if you put a, a gay couple on NBC or CBS, people are, you know, complaining about me trying to change their values or something. Yeah, even you today, know? it's so, like a. Yeah, it's still like a taboo subject. So the fact that we were making progress on this, like, 20, what was this, 20, 25 years ago? It was pretty over, impressive. Over, yeah, over 25 years ago. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah this, this, in this season, there is a, another uh, gay couple, um, Ron and Eric, who, like, run a B&B. &B, and they're recurring characters in, in the, I think they're introduced in the third season. So, yeah, this show is sort of a, a trailblazer in a way for those sort of progressive ideas. Yeah, I, I, that is a good point. You know, 
very positive representation. You know, it just occurred to me that maybe the reason that they're trying to run away from, I believe it was Montana where they started off from, they're trying to find a new utopia for them to create. Uh, do you think that their sexuality had anything to do with it? Like the reason that they ran away was to create a place where they would be more welcome? Um, probably. And I think that um, it, that's kind of hinted to in the fact that they wanted to escape to, or one of them wanted to escape to LA of all places. Yeah. Maybe. I, I, that might be like a subtext kind of thing going on there. I wouldn't be surprised if that was kind of it. I, I do like the idea, not to keep bringing up Kafka, but the idea that like someone would just like go to Alaska to kind of remap their brain and, and, and turn, you know, try, try to learn something new in a place that's largely undiscovered. Um, and I think that's a lot, has a lot to do with what, why they moved up there as well. Mm, I like that. Yeah. Like sort of decompress, uh, you know, get away from the noise and kind of rethink your rethink yourself. And yeah, it's it's. Um, I think Charles, what you're saying, I think that's definitely you can infer that. But I, I like that they don't outright say it. You know, anyone can ascribe their own belief to what they're seeing. So that's kind of involving the audience in a way. And Charles, you and I were kind of criticizing this episode for being so like on the nose and telling you this is an example where the episode doesn't outright say, like, they moved away from Montana because they were persecuted because they were gay. Uh, but you can ascribe whatever whatever works for you, you know? Right. I like Tyler's idea that you would go out here to decompress, like you said, Lee. I can just imagine them being like, oh, dude, I, we're in a city, and I just saw for the first time a car. I can't handle it. City life <laughs> is not for... We got to get out of here. We got we to gotta see nature as it is. I want to know how they got a car up in Alaska. Yeah, at that point, <laughs> it's hard enough to drive to Alaska today, let alone in one of those junkers. Yeah, we forgot about to talk about that, Charles. But there is a, like an old, like Model T style, like just old car in the episode. I do like. We we're talking about how great the production design is in the episode. Tyler, it actually won a won three Emmys. It won Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, and best editing for this episode. Wow. I like how the the car is very muddy, you know, because they've been driving, somehow driving all the way up to Alaska from Montana. How great would it have been if that car in the past hit an old man as well? <laughs> and then <laughs> Just it goes, goes into another inception. flashback. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, okay. Well, is there anything else? Should we uh, wrap it up? Tyler, do you have any other notes you want to touch on? No, I thought it was a fun little episode of television. You know, it's kind of like a, a little time capsule and uh, I'm glad y'all got me to watch it because uh, like I said, I, I didn't have to follow any narrative arcs or anything like that or piece anything together. I was able to just kind of sit down, digest it and uh, it was a fun watch. Yeah, I think that was a fun experiment because very, very widely, wildly different episodes, but uh, a cool sort of bookend. So thanks, Tyler, for joining us again, man. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me anytime. All right, well, Charles, that's the end of season three. So uh, our next episode will be a retrospective where I guess we're gonna we're gonna be talking about what our favorites were in this season three. It's this is a much larger season than we've done before, so it's gonna require me to go back and do a little re- revisiting, I guess, to some of the older episodes. Oh no, definitely. And listeners, if you want to share your thoughts on the entire season three of your favorite moments or just really any thoughts that you have on us or the television show, please write in at Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, we've already got some people writing in, so we'll definitely be talking about like the fan favorite episodes 
really enjoy hearing about you know what what moves people the most because usually it's not just they usually don't say oh this is my favorite episode they kind of talk about their favorite moments and and uh, yeah there's there's so much there's so much that happens in season three so there's a lot to dive into well cool Charles it's the end of season three but we'll be back with our thoughts overall so Charles I'll see you next week all right I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Tyler for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening.